Well, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 6 as we continue our process of going through verse by verse through the book of 1 Peter. And as you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word as we look to this text together. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can get one in the pew rack in front of you and you can find our text on page 1015, page 1015. So let's look to 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. You may be seated. As we open God's Word this morning, and as I deal with the subject matter at hand, a 1980s sitcom came to mind. How many of you remember the sitcom, Different Strokes? Let's see a show of hands. All right, so most of you remember the 80s sitcom. It was in the early to mid-80s. Uh, a comedy of a, of a show about the life of two African-American kids from the Harlem neighborhood of New York. They lived in poverty with their mom and dad, but something had happened where mom and dad uh, had, had died, and they found themselves as orphans. And the, the idea or the picture we get is that they were all alone in a, in a pretty bad neighborhood with, with nobody to look out for them, and here comes this uh, white gentleman, an older man, and we find out through the storyline that Mr. Drummond, this white man, was a millionaire who lived on Park Avenue. And the two African-American boys were Arnold and Willis. And the connection they had was Arnold and Willis's mom was the housekeeper in this mansion on Park Avenue. And Mr. Drummond, knowing their plight, took them in and took them from poverty to, to being on to Park Avenue. And the comedy of how two inner city kids go from poverty to luxury and all the fun that comes in raising two kids is the comedy of the show. But the kid that stole the show was Arnold. How many remember little Arnold Drummond? Arnold was a cute kid played by the late Gary Coleman. And man, his mannerisms, his, his way with things was quite amazing. The kid was as cute as can be. And every time, it almost seemed like in every show, they had a line for him that would seemingly bring the greatest laughter. And it would come when Arnold would hear from someone else, usually his older brother Willis, something that seemed outrageous, something that seemed like it totally didn't make sense. And Arnold would look with those chubby little cheeks and he'd say, what you talking about, Willis? I don't get it. It doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. I don't like what you're saying. I don't like the implications that are there. Well, I'm going to tell you that today as we read this text, a lot of people will say, what are you talking about, Peter? It doesn't make sense. Women, wives submitting to their husbands. Are you kidding me, Peter? You've got to be wrong. Something is not right. This doesn't 
makes sense. Now, P- Peter surely would know, after writing in the first century, that people would be reading his letter 2,000 years later, and that Peter would recognize that in our society today, women are liberated. They've been empowered. And as a result of that, why in the world would Peter think that his words would be anything but null and void? This idea of wives submitting to husbands. And what we begin to do, and what we have to be careful is, is that our culture has seemed to paint the picture that Peter's words are totally out of bounds. I mean, my goodness, people of Village Bible Church, why in the world would we listen? And I'm going to put this to the ladies. Wives, why would you listen to a man, a Galilean fisherman, who lived 2,000 years ago? Why in the world would you listen to him on what the foundational life and lifestyle of you, a woman in the 21st century, why would you listen to him? And yet, according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these words are exactly what the wives of the 21st century need to hear. They need to hear it because these are the words of God. And let us never forget, no matter how out of date God's words may seem, they are right and good. And he blesses the submission to that word. And so we come to a text where many women and many wives, every fiber of their being, is again saying, what you talking about, Peter? And why would they do that? I want you to notice that we do that. We have that kind of response when we are examining the American culture. Write that down in your outlines. The American culture. I love being an American. I love what makes this country and culture great. It's awesome to be a part of a country that has so many people from so many different lands. It is outstanding to be a part of that kind of country. But the thing I love about this country is that we do not separate the rights of men and women, that both men and women have rights under the law, that in our society, women have rights and opportunities. And praise God, our daughters and our, our, the women in our lives can go to school, they can vote, they can have all the privileges that are given to men, and rightly so. I'm glad that we have women who can use their gifts in all areas of life and industry, arts, politics, and service. There's been no greater proponent of of this mindset in the United States than that of the Scriptures. From the beginning, the Bible said he created them male and female, not for one to rule over the other, but for them to be partners in marriage. And because of that, the Bible has, has always been a fan of women using their gifts and using it to the glory of God. And yet, Amidst all of this American advancement, somewhere about a generation or so ago, things began to go haywire. It seems that things, when it came to the feminist movement, seemed to find itself going astray. It only takes us a couple minutes of watching TV or reading magazines or books to see that our culture has lost its way. And what culture is telling us that what true feminism is, is not true at all. A couple weeks ago, uh, the Super Bowl took place, and it was a hallmark day uh, for women. I don't know if you knew that or not. A woman didn't play in the game, but the halftime show was to be led by Beyonce, and all performers, dozens of them during the halftime show, were all women. They were all to be done, and it was hailed as another great step in the life of womanhood. But herein lies the problem. If that performance is what is indicative of the culture's definition of uh, womanhood, then the Bible either is right 
or wrong because it seems that that goes totally against what Peter is talking about. You see, our culture says about women that they should pursue the sultry over the spiritual. They should uh, pursue power over piety, choice over compassion, fashion over faith, and self-advancement in marriage over submission. And here's the thing. If you were to take the biblical model of what I'm going to present this morning, and you were to share this in your workplace or in your neighborhood, I would be pretty safe to say that it will come with the most vitriol of responses. You'll be called everything like a Neanderthal, a chauvinist. You'll be told that you live in the Stone Age, and what you are doing is hampering the work of women in our world today. Now herein lies the problem. It's one thing for people outside of the body of Christ to believe that way. I can assure you if we went and rallied a whole bunch of people from the local jewel who are shopping right now to come in here to listen to your pastor's words on this subject, I can assure you if they knew what they were going to hear, they would collect as much produce as possible to come and to try to silence me. The words that they would hear would would bring them to great dismay. They would be angered by what I say. But here's here's the rub. It's not just the outside world that struggles with this, but even within the body of Christ, many struggle with this idea of submission. And because that is of my greatest importance, how the body of Christ deals with things, that's where I'm going to put my focus this morning. So I'm thankful for Peter, and I'm thankful that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has given women, and my wife especially, an opportunity to hear what God calls as holy living for the women. Now, uh, guys, if you think you're getting away with murder, verse 7 is coming. And we'll deal with that in in the next couple weeks. And so don't think that you're getting away scot-free. But let's notice, ladies, this morning, and there is going to be great application for us as men as well. Uh, I will uh, encourage you. I'm always wanting to be very sensitive to these things. And uh, I was talking with Amanda about it, and she says, let us have it. We're strong. We're women. We can take it. And so uh, I'll try to give it as best of an ch- opportunity as I can. But the first thing we see in our text is that wives, if you want to pursue holiness, it involves, first of all, submitting to your own husbands. Now, that is of great importance. I want you to circle that word own. That is an important word. You are not to submit to men, per se, just any man that comes along that you need to submit to them. What Peter is saying is that within the family dynamic, you are to submit to one man alone, and that is your husband. And it's your own husband, not someone else's husband. It is your husband. And so we know that what Peter is talking about is the marriage relationship. Now the reason why he has brought this up is because God rules his created world in order. And we've seen this, and I'm glad Peter has put this as he has. He started with, in verse 13 of chapter 2, that we are to be subject to uh, every human institution. And so what he is saying is, is that we all are subject to somebody. And then he goes on and he says, well, let's start with the biggest uh, governing authority, and that's government. We are all subject to the laws of the land. We're all subject to those who are in authority over us. Then he goes down to the workplace, and he talks about the relationship between the slave and the master. And he says that slaves are to be subject to their masters. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. 
And now he comes into the family sphere and he says, if the family is going to bring glory and honor to God, if it is going to have an order to it, then someone needs to take the lead. And just as the government takes the lead for a nation, just because his employer takes a lead in a company, so a father, a husband, needs to take a lead and have authority in the home. Now we're going to explain what this means, but let's understand what it doesn't mean. Notice what Peter says to start our passage. He starts with the word likewise, or in the same manner. What does he mean by that? Peter, what are you saying? Does it mean that a wife is a slave to her husband who's her master? Does it mean she's a subject in, uh, if you will, the dictatorship uh, of uh, the husband's reign? The answer is absolutely not. When wives are called to submit, what Peter is saying is, is I want you to submit in the same way with the same spirit. What it means is, wives' submission is to be voluntary. It isn't to be demanded. Notice this. It never says in the scriptures that a husband's job is to tell a wife to submit. That means, men, shut up. Okay? I didn't say that in the first service. A little more free with you guys in the second one. Okay? It means keep your mouth shut. It's not your job. This is between God and his daughters. And God is saying to his daughters, you are to be subject, you are to submit yourself, and that is to be a voluntary thing. And how are we supposed to do it? It's to look like Christ. Just as Christ laid down his life as the sacrifice for the Father in heaven, it is to be a voluntary thing. It wasn't as if God took Jesus dragging and screaming to the cross. Jesus says, I willfully submit myself to the will of the Father. And so we see that the spirit behind this is a life that follows Christ. We recognize another thing, and that is that the submission, just as in the governing authorities, in your employers, and in Christ submitting to the Father, that in each of those scenarios there is a real authority. I want to make this abundantly clear, ladies, God has, for whatever reason, and you can talk with him when you get to heaven, God has said since the foundation that the head of every wife is the husband. It's clear in Scripture. And so we need to understand that the husband is the leader in the home, and he will one day be held accountable. Husbands, listen to this. You will one day be held accountable as to how you lead your wife and how you lead your family. And God will take care of everything on that great and glorious day. Now some of you who know the scriptures uh, a little better will then bring up a passage like Ephesians 5.21. Turn in your Bibles for a moment and let's hammer away at this because I know some of you are saying, ah, Tim, you're being a little too legalistic here. Peter isn't meaning what he's saying, so let's listen to Paul and let's see what Paul says. And in Ephesians 5.21, Paul says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so what that means is, there is nobody who leads the home. It's just kind of, if the wife wants to do it one day, that's fine. If the husband wants to do it another day, you're just to submit to one another. There's no headship in the home. And if there is, anybody can take it, and we are just to submit to each other. Now, there is some truth to that within the marriage relationship. And I want you to to notice and just write this passage down. We see mutual submission 
in the marriage relationship, according to 1 Corinthians, write this down, 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 4. In 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 4, and you can study this later, Paul speaks about the sexual relationships between a husband and wife. And he says that the wife's body is not the wife's alone, but it's the husband's. And the men say, amen. That's good. But notice, men, that your body is not your own and that you cannot reserve conjugal rights from your wife, but that your body is hers as well. And so within the marriage bed relationship, there is submission. One body isn't their own, it's someone else's. And so within this movement of society that says that a woman can say, this is my body, and that it doesn't involve the husband, is just totally against what Scripture says. And likewise, no husband can say that of his body to his wife. So there is mutual submission. But when it comes to the headship, the leadership of the body, the family, the Bible is abundantly clear that every family is to have a husband who is called by God himself to lead his family, and as a result of that, his wife is to submit and follow his lead. Now you say, well, wait a minute. What about submitting to one another? Let's take that principle, Ephesians 5.21, hopefully you're still there, and let's work through that. If that is the case, if what Paul is saying is is that this whole idea of headship and authority is now out the window, even though God established this in the creative order in Genesis, now what Paul is doing is getting rid of it. He's dismantling it. Wives, do whatever you want. Husbands, do whatever you want. Notice how that thinking goes. And nobody would be able to say, no matter how much they would want it to, to make this passage say this. Notice. If wives then submit to their husbands, and likewise husbands then submit to their wives, then keep going through it, as Christ is the head of the church. If Christ is the head of the church, but we're to submit mutually to one another, then that would mean that the church is to submit to Christ, and Christ is to submit to the church. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Let's keep going. You don't think that that works? Well, let's keep going in verse 1 of chapter 6. Then what that means is children are to submit to their parents, but parents then are also to submit to their children. Oh, God forbid. Okay? Is anybody going to argue with me that the kids, the parents are to submit to their kids? This is not what Paul is saying. What Paul is articulating is there is order. And the reason why there is order is because God knows that human beings need order to live life. Because if there's not order, then there's chaos. And so what we see is is that the man is to lead and the woman is to follow. Well, what does that look like? Well, the best way to understand it is an illustration that we are given by Paul. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, we'll get back to 1 Peter in a moment, but we need to set the table for this. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. You say, but Tim, I'm equal with my husband. But Tim, I'm just as smart as my husband. But Tim, I I can lead just as well as my husband. And all of that could be absolutely true. And here's how we understand submission. Verse 3 of chapter 11. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Men, who are you subject to? Jesus Christ. That's your boss. 
And some of you are being lousy employees with your boss right now. We'll get to that in a moment. The head of a wife is her husband. Okay, that, 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 I'm struggling with that a little bit, you may say. But notice, the head of Christ is who? Help me out. God. Wait a minute. Isn't Jesus God? Isn't he just equal with the Father? Yeah, he's equal. Was there a time where God the Father existed where Jesus didn't exist? No. Do they have the same power and the same intellect? And, the, and do they, they work together in all things? Yes. Is God the Father greater than God the Son? No. But God the Son submits to the Father. Wives, this issue of submission does not speak to your intellect. It does not speak to your spiritual abilities. It does not speak to your physical abilities. It does not deal with your emotional abilities. It says that, yes, in the sight of God, men and women are equal. They are equal. They have, uh, we have women that will blow some men out of the water, may blow many men out of the water in the tasks and the jobs that they do. But in the family, just as Christ, who is equal with the Father, submits to the Father in function, not in being or in essence, but in function for the sake for the Trinity to deal uh, responsibly and to deal orderly with the created world, so the wife is to submit to the husband. And so we see this authority and this submission in the Godhead. Write that down in your outlines. It's seen clearly in the Godhead. Now let's keep moving because we'll run out of time if I don't keep moving on this. But notice Peter goes on and he says, all right, now we got the submission thing down. We're to submit ourselves. But notice to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word. So let's stop there and understand that Peter is separating some things. And so submission needs to happen amidst godly husbands. Write that down. Godly husbands. Now notice that the word is, is that you could be a good husband or a bad husband. Now I want to tell you something. Husbands, if you are making your wife's job of submitting difficult, then it's your problem. It's not your wife's problem. If what you are doing is not leading your wife and your children as Christ has led and loved the church, then you are sinning against your wife and your children. If you think that what Peter is saying is because you are the leader, that whatever you says goes, that you get to pick what you're going to do without any regard for what your family thinks, then you got another thing coming. You need to get your head out of the sand and start understanding what the Scripture says. The Bible tells us that the church is to submit to Christ. Christ is the leader of the church. And so what did Christ do? He laid his life down for her. He gave himself up for her. So that by laying his life down, she might be lifted up. The reason why Christ went to the cross was so that you and I might be lifted up. So what the husband's job is to do, a godly husband is one who lays down his life for his wife so that she can be lifted up. In the Badal home, Amanda's a queen. She's a queen. And my boys know, and my son learned this this morning, you don't smart off to the queen. Amanda's lifted up. 
And the reason why is because behind every good queen is a bigger, meaner king. So you say, well, how does that play itself out? A godly husband, the best way to illustrate this is this. The godly husband does his best to play the melody of Christ's tune in the family. The wife's job is to play the harmony. And part of the problem is, is that many of you men are not playing the melody of Christ's tune in your family. And your wife is trying to pick it up, and she's doing her best to make you look a little better because you are, quite frankly, not too aggressive, but you're just lazy. One of the epidemics in the church is lazy manhood. That you're not taking the role, men, spiritually that you need to do. My job is to make Amanda's life of submission something very easy to do. That she sees that it's easy to submit, not because I make all the right decisions, not because I'm perfect, because I'm not, not even close to it, but that I think of her needs. Ephesians 5 reminds me that I care for my wife as I care for my own body that I feed her and care for her as I feed and care for myself, that I love her as I love myself. No man ever hated his own body, the Bible says. So why in the world would I neglect my wife? A godly husband is one who puts his wife on a pedestal, ministering to her as joint heirs, as we'll learn in a couple weeks, of the grace that we have received. Now, Peter goes on and he says, okay, we got the godly husband down. Guys, pursue that. And if you don't understand, you're going to be held accountable for it. But notice he also says the godless husband in verse 1, so that even if some don't obey the word, just, with, just as with corrupt governments and crooked employers, Peter's words to Christians' wives is completely consistent. Submit even to bad husbands. That word or phrase, don't obey the word, speaks of a husband who isn't neutral to the things of God, but who is actively pursuing a life of disobedience and rebellion against God's standards for living. So Peter is saying, no matter how difficult it is, wives, to submit to men who are not just faltering in their attempts to be godly husbands, but who can give a rip about being a godly husband, who hates the very mention of Christ and Christianity, it is the job of you, wife, to submit, even though those men may be living contrary to the commands of God. Now, some of you may say right away, the question will be asked, well, when don't I have to submit? You know, we've asked this question each and every time, and the answer is consistent. The Bible reminds us over and over again, whether it's with governing authorities or your bosses or with a husband. Wives, you do not have to submit to your husband if what he is asking you to do is to go against God's word to follow his will. Okay? So if your husband tells you to do something that you know goes contrary to God's word, you are to respectfully and humbly say, I'm sorry, but I can't do it. Now, right away, because we live in a world of sin and because there are terrible men and husbands in this world, I would be remiss not to speak to the issue of abuse. And I would tell you this, your husband's threatening abuse on you or your children, or if he is abusing you, get out of the house. Call the police. Let the governing authorities deal with him. 
And before you go back into that home, you seek godly wisdom as to what the parameters should be. And I will tell you, a husband abuses his wife, he should spend some time in jail. There's, it's out of place. We're not to be abusing women, not in the least bit. And so if that's going on, then seek the wisdom and counsel of godly people as to know when those times to flee a bad situation should take place. But in all other situations, I don't want to get rid of all the straw men, and for this sermon, straw women out of the case. Your job is to submit. And in those situations that you can't, you humbly and you ask God for wisdom and guidance as how to not submit to your husband in that way. So what does it then involve? It involves adopting the proper attitude. How do we adopt the proper attitude, ladies? Verse 1 and 2. And, I, and I, you're probably worrying here. We're not going to be able to deal with all of this text uh, as much as we'll deal with some of it. But let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. Now notice that it involves a role. In verses 1 and 2, Peter uses the word conduct. It's his favorite word. He uses the word conduct uh, there or way of life or pattern of life more than he uses any other word in all of his letter. And what he says is our conduct, first of all, is to be one that is holy. Notice what he says, that this is how, in verse 5, the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So what is your role, ladies? Your role is to be godly and holy women. What comes before pleasing your husband? Number one is pleasing God. The best way, men, that your wives can serve and submit to you is by serving and submitting to their God first. And so what women you need to understand is the same thing what men need to understand. And that is that women and men need to seek God first. And when they seek the vertical relationship, the horizontal relationship with their husbands will be a whole lot easier. Holiness that sees itself that even for seasons of time you may find yourself under unjust suffering. But that holy life, that holy woman looks to Jesus and, he see, and she sees Jesus, and she sees that he was willing to entrust himself to the God who judges justly. So what that means is, your role as the harmony player in this great symphony called marriage is to at times duck so God can hit your husband. Your job isn't to hit him, whether physically or metaphorically or figuratively, but your job is to get out of God's way so that God can deal with your husband. How do you do that? You live your life with your husband with all respect. Notice the word there he says that you are to conduct yourself with a respectful and pure conduct. It involves respect. This conduct is, that word there, respect, is the word phobo. We've heard about this word. It's where we get phobia. It means fear. But it doesn't mean scared to death fear because we see in verse 6 that we have nothing to fear, ladies, that is frightening if we do what is good. And so what Peter is reminding us of is he's telling us, submit to your husbands, do your best to live a godly and wholesome life before them, and when you do that, you will not only please God, but there's a good chance you'll please your husband. It's not a guarantee, but it's a truism. As you serve God well by faithfully listening to his commands and heeding his call, then as you serve your husband in that way, there's a good chance 
that the outcome will be different. Now notice what it says. It will lead to sometimes or instances of redemption. That your husband may be one without a word. Peter seems to be telling women who are in difficult situations and marriages that they can win their husband, not by being Billy Graham the evangelist, but by quietly and submissively living out their lives before their husbands. Let me explain to you, wives, how you win your husbands, whether he's a believer or a non-believer. You do so not much through his ears, but through his eyes. You don't do it about telling you what you believe, but you do it by showing how you behave. My wife has taught me more than I would have ever thought in our 15 years of marriage. Not because she's spoken. She's a pretty quiet lady, at least in public. Okay? But she's done a far greater job of teaching me things that I never would have known about God and the way to live the Christian life by how she just conducts herself. As I watch her, and what can happen, it's not a guarantee, but what can happen is a man, a husband can be one, the Bible says, without a word. Wives, you have a huge opportunity to change your husbands for Christ's sake without a word by living a life of respect and a conduct that is pure. Now notice, how do we do that? Ladies, how do you do it? It involves being attractive in the sight of God. Verses 3 and 4 now deals with the adorning issue. Please don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. And then he speaks of Sarah, who shares that she speaks of her husband Abraham and calls him master, just so you know, it's from the book of Genesis, and she does that under her her breath. She doesn't go around, oh, master, oh, master, whatever you want, master, okay? That's not biblical wife, okay? That ain't it. I don't think a man has ever called me master, okay? But what she's saying is, is it's, and you can look, and uh, the passage is speaking about that she's following the lead of her husband. He's my man. He's my guy. And if he says that's what God has said to him, and it doesn't go against what I understand about God and what I know of God, then I'm going with my man. Abraham's it. You know what it's about? It's about Abraham being told that the next year, the strangers that came to his tent who said that she was going to have a baby... This 100-year-old man and this 90-year-old woman, when Abraham says, hey, honey, we need to go spend some time together because God says there's a miracle baby coming, she says, okay, all right, we'll do it. Wrong way to put it, but uh, you get the picture. <laughs> I knew there was going to be one of those slip-ups in this message. So, so, so what does she do? She follows the lead of her husband, and in doing so, Without anybody hearing anything, she calls her husband master. That's beautiful. That's right. So what does it mean then in our culture? What does it mean amidst the women's liberation and empowerment movement that our culture tells us that a woman's beauty is only skin deep? But the Bible reminds us, sisters, that the beauty is fleeting. And what Peter is saying is, is long after that youthful, vigorous look 
is a gone, that you are still beautiful, and that your husband can find you incredibly attractive, not only because of your outward splendor, but because what really matters in a marriage is a woman who is beautiful on the inside. Now, does that mean that any attempt to try to do anything to make yourself look better is sinful? No, that's not what Peter's saying. And if you notice, if you take Peter's words literally, then it means any clothing, any jewelry, any doing of the hair is sinful and is external in its adornment. But Song of Solomon reminds us of the care that a wife takes to looking attractive and good for her sake and the sake of her husband. So we don't need to take these verses in some strict way. So how do we do it? Write this down. There are two statements that I would apply to this text. Number one, if you want to be beautiful in the eyes of your husband and in the eyes of God, it is not so much, it is not so much about style. Style's important. I'm glad my wife dresses in a stylish way. But it's not about style. But it's more about spirit. I'm glad I'm married to a woman who is as beautiful on the outside as she is on the inside. It's not so much, write this down, about opulence, but obedience. So let me close with this, and we'll we'll shut this thing down. After being named the most beautiful woman of the year, according to People magazine, Halle Berry spoke these words in the following statement in an interview. Being thought of as attractive has spared me nothing in life. It has spared me no heartache, no trouble, and love, if you want to believe it or not, has been incredibly difficult for me to find. And if you want my opinion on beauty, it is the following. Beauty is essentially meaningless and worthless because it's always transitory. I don't amen Halle Berry very often, but I'll amen that. She's saying, hey, you give me this claim that I'm the most beautiful woman in all the world, let me tell you something, it's meaningless. What does it matter? It hasn't helped me find love. It hasn't helped me with heartache. It hasn't helped me with troubles. It doesn't help me. But the Bible tells us that what helps a woman in heartaches and troubles, and whether they're 18 or 85, is a heart that is given over to God. That a wife and a woman is to pursue not just simply outward beauty or to go and work for all of the amazing wardrobe and accessories, but a Christian young woman, a Christian middle-aged woman, and a Christian old woman is to pursue the following. A humble heart that longs to honor God and serve him faithfully. So what that means, ladies, is are you spending more time on preparing your hair then you are preparing your heart, then you're disobeying the words that Peter shares. What it means is that a dress doesn't make you, but an ongoing dependence on your God, who has called you to live in a quiet, submissive spirit to her husband, is great gain. Let us teach our daughters that when they think that they have to have all of those entrapments. Let us teach our sons that Because the world is telling them that they're to find women that have been photoshopped and airbrushed. And let us teach our women of this church that pursuing Christ is great. 
and not pursuing that number on a scale. This is where I implore the older women of this church to teach the younger women what it means to be a godly wife and a godly mother. Husbands, I remind you to bring out the best in your wife. You're called the lover. I want to close with a statement, if I can find it. Maybe not. And I just want to close with this, and then we'll go to a word of prayer. And I just want to cover all my bases in this statement. Peter is not implying the inferiority of women to men. The submission that he calls for does not negate the spiritual equality of husband and wife, but rather it's a submission of function. Every team must have a captain. This includes the Godhead. Therefore, everyone must have a head. And God says that that responsibility falls squarely on the shoulders of the husband. Therefore, the characteristics that should be most desirable in a good wife is a gentle and quiet spirit, which she responds with grace to the responsible decisions of her husband. Instead of being tyrannized by the advancing of the aging process and being captivated by the changing fashions of our day, a biblical woman and wife is one that focuses on that which God prizes most and which produces praise and glory for him alone. These verses are a calling to all wives, both present and future, and we should do all we can to help the women of our church to see this as right and good in the sight of God. I would be remiss not to say that I am incredibly thankful and indebted to God that God has given me a wife that lives this out. I don't do this to prop my wife up, but she is a wonderful partner. And I don't say that very often publicly, and so I share it with you. God bless our God in heaven for a woman like Amanda. And I pray that wives, you would do all that you can to bring out the best in your wives. And wives, do your best to bring out the best that God has for you as well. Let's pray. Father God, difficult text in front of us this morning. But Lord, I pray that we would submit ourselves under your word this morning. And Lord, I know that it may be a long ride home in some of the cars. And so I pray your grace on your people as they work through these things. Lord, give us the grace to know where to apply these things, where to know where to give grace, where to hold each other accountable. But Lord, I pray that we would look to our own lives first, that husbands would look at their lives and that wives would look at their own and that we would do some real business with you, Lord. We would check the, the logs in our eyes before we look at the speck in our sister's or brother's eyes. And Lord, in doing so, that one result would happen, and that is that you would be seen as glorious. And that the people of this world, even though they, what, the way we live might be so odd to them, that they might see a people who serve their God well, who serve their spouses well, and that the world would see families that are united and families that are serving you together for the sake of the gospel. Lord, give us the strength that we'll need. Empower us by your spirit to do so. It's a tall order for husbands. It's a tall order for wives. And so, Lord, we ask for your abilities and your gifting to make it a reality. Now, lead us from this place, Lord. 
a changed people because we've come face to face with your word. And we pray that in this week we might be able to live differently as a result. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.